And this morning we open up the Gospel of Mark and we continue on in our journey with Jesus. A journey which in the narrative, in the story, as we're tracking along with it in Mark, is moving toward the cross. A destination which is now, in the story we're about to read today, just three days away um, from the scene in view in our passage this morning. And as I mentioned, please open up your Bibles to Mark 12, verse 18, as we enter into another one of those conflict stories which mark that final week of Jesus' earthly life prior to his death and resurrection. We'll be reading today from Mark 12, verses 18 through 27. That is verses 18 through 27. And uh, si habla español, abran sus Biblias a Evangelio de Marcos, capítulo 12, versículo 18 a 27. Pregunta sobre la resurrección. And you may notice, if you've been with us uh, for any length of time now, tracking along with this Mark series, that we've gone a bit out of order. <laughs> and skipped verses uh, 13 through 17. That wasn't an accident. We didn't forget about it. We're going to get back to it. But coming off of last Sunday's focus on Christ's own resurrection from the dead, and with our celebration of Resurrection Sunday just one week away, we thought it would be fitting to switch things up today and to get to these verses and then get verses 13 through 17 later on after we celebrate Easter. This morning, we move from a focus upon Jesus' resurrection to our own. Up to this point in Mark, Jesus has now stated four times that he will be raised from the dead after suffering and being rejected and killed at the hands of men. But what about us? Will we be raised? As we'll see in our text this morning, this was actually a controversial question amongst the Jewish people of Jesus' day. Some said there would be a resurrection of the dead. Others said there was no resurrection of the dead. And we meet these others in the very first verse of the story that's before us. And it's the only verse that we'll read at the outset of our time to get today, and we'll cover the rest as we get to them. But so with that, would you please join me in reading from verse 18 and then taking a moment to pray. Mark 12 Beginning in verse 18, Mark writes this. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question. Join me in a word of prayer as we receive God's words to us today. Lord, this morning already we thank you for gathering us according to your grace that we might be made more confident in these things that are true, made more confident in the new life we have in you through Christ Jesus. And Lord, we just pray now as we come to your word and as we receive it and as we hear it proclaimed that you would send your spirit to help me to make it clear, to help us, Lord, to receive it and to apply it and to have hearts that are open to what you'd want to do and what you want to say to us this morning. I pray that the effect of this word upon us would be to increase our confidence in what is true because of the gospel, to increase our hope in the resurrection and all that it means for us. I pray that you would use this time to glorify yourself as the God who can surely bring us new life. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we enter into the story today, While teaching in the temple, Jesus has been approached by members of the branch of the first century uh, Jewish party 
known as the Sadducees. They come to him to ask him a question. And they are those, Mark's making it clear and emphatic to us, who say, among the other things that they stand for, that there is no resurrection. What they mean by that is that there is no uh, general sort of on that last day, that great day at the end of human history, right? This rising from the dead in which everybody who's ever lived will be raised up to enter into something that would come after that, some sort of afterlife experience, and we'll talk more about the details of that. But these guys, they deny that. There is no last day. There is no judgment. There is no rising up of all the dead. That's not going to happen. And these are the guys who come to Jesus saying, there is no resurrection. And they come with a question. But before we get to that question, let's, let's stop right here for a second. Before we get there to their question, I have a question for you this morning. Do you say there is a resurrection? Do you say? Right now, ask yourself, do you say there is a resurrection? Do you believe this morning that God can and will raise the dead? That there is life beyond this life? That's not just some sort of spiritual essence, right, floating about (laughs) in the clouds somewhere, but embodied like it is now, like the way we were meant to be and live, only perfect and without end. If you're a Christian this morning, are you confident that you'll share in Jesus' resurrection? Are you confident in that? And if so, is the reality of that resurrection life to come, is that rightly affecting, if you're a Christian, the life that you're living now? Are you, you living now like there is life to come? And if you're not a Christian this morning, honestly here, does all the talk of resurrection and life after death, does it seem to you ridiculous, unscientific, or maybe just a bunch of wishful thinking? That'd be nice if it were true, but I I don't really think so. Or perhaps you might even this morning be wishing that something like this were true, that death wouldn't be the end of life, that there was something beyond this, whatever that might be. This morning, What do you say? What hope do you have as you consider the prospect of life after death? What confidence do you have that this hope for life could be for you? This is the question before us this morning. What do you say? A very important question indeed, but let me submit an even more important question to us to consider along with that. What does Jesus say? What does Jesus say in response to this question? Jesus, the one who we've seen in the Gospel of Mark, has claimed God's own authority to speak on matters such as this, who's proven that authority through miracles, mighty works, and unparalleled teaching. He taught like no other man had taught before in their hearing, who, as Christians confess, was proved to be the Lord and authority of all by his own resurrection from the dead that first Easter Sunday. What does this Jesus say? What does this soon-to-be-resurrected Jesus, as we'll see in our text here, have to say about our own resurrection from the dead? Does God have the power to do this? Does God have a plan to do it? Does God's word actually teach that we should have this hope and confidence? Do we, right now, have a sure anchor for our resurrection hope. Well, this morning, let's find out together. 
on this Palm Sunday. Jesus, he addresses both believers and skeptics alike as he responds to the Sadducees' question, and he teaches us all about the resurrection from the dead. And we find ourselves, as we enter into this story, back in the temple where Jesus is once again engaged in conflict. In the final week of his life, he'll actually engage in six separate conflicts. And he'll, he'll, in so doing, he'll confront all the major players um, and powerful groups that are present in his day. We've already met the Sanhedrin, that is the Jewish Supreme Court, comprised of the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, the highest authorities in the land, and he's already been uh, confronted by them. Uh, he'll also, as we will see in the text that we skipped over this morning, be confronted by the Pharisees and the Herodians, and the scribes in particular, later on in chapter 12. But today, we have the Sadducees before us, this group that is confronting Jesus. So look with me at verse 18. Verse 18 tells us that the Sadducees, they came to him. And they came to him in order to test him. And we already know that this group, Mark's made it clear, they denied the resurrection of the dead, a point which he's emphatic to make here at the start of the story. But as we are entering into the scene, what else do we know about this group? the Sadducees. Well, a couple things that are important to note for us today. In addition to denying the resurrection and the afterlife, they also denied the existence of angels and demons. That is to say, they were (laughs) non-supernatural. Nothing like that is happening, will happen, going to happen. In contrast to the Pharisees, another group that was prominent in Jesus' day, who confessed all of these things. They disagree together, disagree internally. And speaking of the Pharisees, The Sadducees actually as well rejected the oral tradition of the Pharisees that we've already heard about in the Gospel of Mark. They rejected their oral tradition, and they even disagreed with them on what was the proper canon, the proper list, the proper contents of the Scripture. The Sadducees, they actually only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible. We call it the Pentateuch. We call it the Torah. We call it the Law of Moses. This is the only uh, collection of writings that they said were authoritative for life, for doctrine, and this is where they rooted and grounded all their beliefs. And we'll get to see some more on that later. They were also the leading party within the Sanhedrin, that the, the Jewish Supreme Court and highest ruling authority in the land. They were the leading party amongst the highest authoritative group in that time and in that place. And as such, they were the most influential within the temple. We've heard a lot about the temple lately and the priesthood system. These guys are the most influential guys in all of Uh, first century Jewish religiosity. These guys are at the top of the pile there. They were the elites within their culture, in other words. And aiming to maintain that status of being elite, of being an authority, of being on top, (laughs) they were not reformers (laughs) by any means. But instead, they were keepers of the status quo. That was their MO back in the day, which led them, um, coincidentally, to be quite cozy toward the Romans who were Um, the empire, right, at large that day, ruling over the Jewish people as well as all the rest of the known world. (laughs) They were cozy toward the Romans. They were collaborating with their rule for the sake of maintaining the position that they had being on the top of that pile. And really, in so many ways, though some details differ, right, and the context differs, they sound like many people today. Sound like many today who believe this life is all there is. That this life, it's about maximizing our comfort, minimizing our suffering, exploring every pleasure that's out there to be explored, expressing oneself without any sort of restriction whatsoever. 
exacting and achieving all justice that's to be had in this life and getting all that one can out of the life we live now. Yet, even as this is kind of the prevailing wind and and trend of of our culture around us, even as many around us live like this, and they live like this life is all there is with abandon, levels of reported unhappiness are higher than ever amongst our neighbors. Summing all this up in a a recent uh, survey, um, which uh, surveyed the values of 100,000 Americans, journalist Aaron Zittner, he says this. He says, if there's one thing today, (laughs) one value, one trend of, of belief that we all confess and share, there's one thing, he says, we're united in today, it's this, our pessimism. If there's one thing most people today in the world in which we live are united in, it is pessimism. Pessimism. Church, our neighbors don't have much hope that the life that we live matters now, that it's going to change anything, that there's any sort of hopeful future or better tomorrow to be had. There's pessimism, which is the prevailing trend a hopelessness, which characterizes how most people these days are thinking and feeling as they look out upon their lives. And really, like so many today, the Sadducees, they had a low ceiling on the height of their hope. It didn't extend or stretch too far. And guys like this, people like this, come to Jesus with a question. And the question that they come to him with is really a sort of trick question. And let's see what they ask in verses 19 through 23. So read along with me. They say to Jesus, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. (laughs) And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, Whose wife will she be? Four, the seven had her as wife. (laughs) In short, they're asking here, if a woman has seven husbands, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? How will this play out and shake out on the last day? And this question (laughs) might sound very absurd or strange or unfamiliar to us that they would practice what they're practicing here, but... Let's help uh, situate the question that they're asking a little bit. They frame their question, we see, by citing Moses. And we already heard that the Sadducees only hold to that first uh, collection of writings attributed to Moses, right, in his authorship as authoritative. So they cite Moses. You know, Moses said um, that um, if a brother should die, his brother should fulfill uh, certain responsibilities. And they cite this practice that was known as leveret marriage. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25, and the practice is essentially this. In the case that a um, man would marry um, and fail to produce an heir, offspring, his brother would come, would take his wife, and would provide him an heir for the sake of perpetuating his, his name and his legacy, and also, too, very importantly, for the sake of providing for his widow. That son would become legally um, the brother's who was deceased son, and the brother who uh, had that son wouldn't have a claim to him in that sort of way. So this was a way of providing for the widow. This was a way of sustaining his legacy, as it were. And Moses, he said that um, this should be done. So the question becomes, (laughs) but what if a brother took a wife 
and died uh, without having any kids, any offspring. And then the next in line died without any offspring, and then we do that times seven. <laughs> this is the situation that they're painting here. What if all that really happened, Jesus? What if seven times it's happened, there's no kids, there's been that many marriages? What's going to happen <laughs> in the resurrection when all these husbands are alive again? <laughs> what is this marital situation going to become? <laughs> Whose wife will a woman be when all her dead husbands are suddenly alive again? What are we going to do in the resurrection, Jesus? <laughs> and this is the question that they pose, and if we haven't seen already, it's not an honest question that they're asking, because these guys don't even believe in the resurrection in the first place. And so they're trying to throw out a, a question that will throw a wrench into the gears of the resurrection theology of Jesus' day. They're trying to say, hey, come on, Jesus, don't you see? This is absurd. This is problematic to believe in something like this, because something like this were to happen, how is that going to play out? It's nonsensical, in other words, to hold to this kind of teaching. In effect, they're saying, how will this situation work out in the resurrection? Can the supposed resurrection account for a situation like this? And this is the question that they pose to the end of asserting that the resurrection itself, right, teaching that doctrine, it's absurd. It's nonsensical, and therefore, it's not going to happen. The question for us is why would they go to the, to the lengths of, of, of asking this question and, and, and pitching this out here like this? What's the upshot for them? And what they're trying to do here is discredit the teaching of the resurrection, um, the teaching to which the Pharisees hold, the teaching to which they're trying to discern if Jesus holds to. Because in so doing, if they can discredit the resurrection, they can discredit Jesus as a teacher. They can discredit his theology, but even more so, if the dead aren't raised, who else won't be raised? Jesus. So if we can discredit the resurrection in their minds, we can discredit Jesus as a teacher, we can discredit his own resurrection from the dead, and therefore his authority, not legit, not binding, pay this guy no mind, he's not someone we should listen to. They're trying to theologically discredit Jesus and trump his authority with this questioning. That's what they're aiming to do here. This is why it's significant for us. But we see Jesus, he isn't stumped by this. He's not taken aback or thrown off or unable to account for their questioning. And in verses 24 through 27, he responds to their question. And in so doing, he comes right back at them by asserting that their own line of questioning has made it clear that they know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. If they truly understood their own Bible, Jesus is saying, and had any awareness, any experience of God's power, they would not ask a question like this. They're very off base. First off, as we look down at verse 25, they're immediately off base in their conception of what the resurrection will be like. Um, they think that their uh, you know, absurd scenario of the wife with seven husbands will throw a wrench in the resurrection's gears, but they're actually dead wrong. Um, because they've assumed, and this is important, they've assumed that the resurrected state is going to be just like this one now. And Jesus, he indicates to them that though there is, yes, there's continuity, what happens now <laughs> helps and prepares us and connects to what's going to be happening and being experienced then, there's continuity between our existence now and existence then. There will also be just qualitative differences in these two states of being. This is why Jesus says, for when they, that is the widow and her husbands, in verse 25 he says this, for when they, 
the widow and her husbands, and by extension, all of us, when they rise from the dead, he says this, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying here, Sadducees, you've got it wrong in thinking of the resurrection life in the way that you have. Because human marriage, as we know it, will be no more in the life to come. (laughs) No longer would that woman be married to those men, but she and they, Jesus is saying, would be like angels in heaven. They would not become angels, but very clear here, they would be like angels, not turning and transforming into angelic beings, but they're like them in the sense that they would have an eternal existence, right? In God's presence, like angels do, that would not include marriage and sexual reproduction. They would be like angels in that sense, eternally in God's presence, but not including the human relationship as it is here now um, in marriage. And so with this, Jesus is indicating that the kind of existence that we're all headed toward in this resurrected state is one in which certain, you know, realities, certain facets of our life now will be transcended, right? Contrary to the, the Sadducees' misrepresentation of the resurrection life, um, resurrection life isn't just a sort of kind of like prolonged earthly life where we hit play after we hit pause when, you know, death happened. It's not just a resumption of business as usual, but it's an entirely new kind of existence, something which Paul says, you know, no eye has seen, no eye has heard, the glory, right, that's to be shown to us. There's something great and grand that we don't even have a full (laughs) context for yet that we're headed toward. And that's not to say now that, right, um, what we experience in this life doesn't relate to what we'll experience then, but that the embodied lives we live here in this old creation are but mere echoes of the glory that awaits us in the new creation to come. It's going to be greater than, so much more. And and breaking in here, as we're having this discussion and and talking about marriage, and this can be a text that could be (laughs) maybe sad, maybe, maybe difficult, maybe something that's hard for us to wrap our heads around as our marriages are important. This is our first call, our first ministry, um, something to which we devote our lives and give ourselves away for. Our marriages are very important. And so it might be hard to square with or difficult to wrap our minds around the fact that they are, in one sense, temporal. They will not last forever. But breaking in here to speak to that just a, a bit before we move on here. Though this isn't the focus of Jesus' current teaching to the Sadducees, the broader teaching of the New Testament It explains this transcending of of human marriage. For we see that the ultimate reason that we are now married and given in marriage is to be, listen to this, a sign and a pointer toward the marriage of Christ and the church. This is the great mystery of marriage that was not fully realized in the beginning, but was progressively revealed through redemptive history and made known in the gospel of Christ as Paul teaches us in Ephesians chapter 5. We will no longer be in our marriages then because we will all be fully and perfectly united to Christ. The signs which are our marriages will no longer be necessary, in other words, as the very thing that they signify uh, will have arrived in full. The complete and the perfect union between Jesus and his bride That's the one marriage to which all our marriages point, the one marriage that all our marriages are headed toward. Think of it this way, right? Um, When you're going to Disneyland 
And if Disneyland doesn't work for you, maybe like insert the angel's big A in the parking lot <laughs> of the stadium or uh, the water tower in Santa Ana that says, hey, the, the city is here. You're, you're heading right into it, right? Think of any of those things, whatever works best for you. But when you're going to Disneyland, there are these, you know, big and bright and eye-catching signs, right? They, they guide the way to this magical destination, right? That's their purpose. They're pointing to where you're headed. But once you arrive at Disneyland, or you're outside Angel Stadium, or you're at the base of the water tower, right? Whichever you, you like. <laughs> you don't stand outside, right, and gaze up at the entrance. Do you? You go in. <laughs> we go into Disneyland. We go into the city. We go into the Angel Stadium, whatever you like. <laughs> you go inside, and you enjoy all that's to be had in there. And the point is that our marriages are like these signs outside of Disneyland, right? They're big, beautiful pointers to an even more wonderful and even more magical union between Christ and his church. And so the sign points all the way to that in this life here and now, but then once we enter into that resurrection, that new and eternal state, and Christ is perfectly united to his bride, we don't need the sign anymore. We're not going to stand outside Disneyland, right? We're just going to enter in and to enjoy the fullness of all that's to be had there. As Revelation chapter 21, uh, verses 1 through 2 uh, speaks to this, it says that after Christ has returned to judge the world, to save his people, and to bring in this eternal state that we are, we're talking about here, the Apostle John writes this. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is that new creation that we're headed toward. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The existence of creation itself has been transformed at this point. And the sea, he says, which is a symbol for chaos and evil and sin, the sea itself was no more. He says this, he says, And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, which is here a symbol representing God's people, the bride, the church of Jesus Christ, coming down out of heaven from God, listen, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. John sees the church of Christ in this vision. As Paul describes her, in another place in Ephesians 5, he sees the church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, completely holy and without blemish, made ready to enjoy the fullness of communion with Christ forevermore. This is what we're headed toward. This is the marriage that all our marriages point to, such that when we get there, <laughs> we're not going to stand outside and look up. We're just going to dive in and enter in and all together enjoy the fullness of all that it means to be the bride of Christ, to be his people together forever. And church, if this is what our marriages mean, <laughs> oh, we could say a lot about this, but if this is what our marriages mean, how much more should we value them, invest in them, and cultivate them if they're pointing to this reality? For the sake of Christ's own glory, right, would our marriages, the signs that are our marriages, which are signs that are not stationary, but they're mobile, right? They're going out and about, and they're walking through this world. They're shining before our children. They're shining before each other. They're shining before our neighbors. Would these signs brightly and clearly beam out the love and the unity and the sacrifice that we see in the relationship of Christ and his bride? And, and, and thinking about this, one of the best ways we can begin to apply what Jesus is teaching us here and what the Bible teaches about this is to think this, that one of the best ways we can prepare to honor Christ forever, right, in that perfect union and in that internal state one of the best ways we can prepare to honor him then 
is to prioritize our marriages now because they reflect that reality. They point us to it. They help us to better enjoy Jesus. One of the best ways we can prepare for that eternity then is to prioritize our marriages now. Would we demonstrate in this way our own resurrection hope in the way that we're married here and now? How we live with our spouse, how we treat one another, the affection that we show, the sacrifice that we offer, it points to the reality in our hearts, our lack thereof, of the fact that we're headed toward this one great marriage union. Would we be married well in such a way that we're prepared to experience Jesus then? And to those of us in the room who are yet unmarried, if the Lord has put it on your heart to desire marriage, would you desire marriage and pursue marriage with this in mind? Holding it in high regard, as you ought to, and understanding that as we've seen in this, that it's not ultimately, listen to this, about you and what you get out of it. But it's about Christ and the glory that's due to him. And yet in this, right, if we're thinking about this rightly and our hearts are rightly oriented and attuned toward this, that marriage is about Jesus and not us, oh, he's good to give us joy. He's good to give us peace and, and comfort and blessing and all the goodness that comes from relating to one, one another with him at the center as we pursue marriage in that way. To those who are yet pursuing and not, on the, not quite there yet, keep this in mind. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. And watch as he pours out his goodness and his blessing upon you as you put him at the center of things now, because that's what you're going to be doing forever. Would we pursue marriage in this way? And so as we have seen here, connecting back to where Christ is leading us in the passage this morning, God's word, it makes it clear that our marriages, they won't last forever, but they do point to that which is forever. The resurrected state that experience of eternal life to which we're headed is one in which there is only one marriage, and that is the marriage of Christ and his church. A state in which marriage as we know it will be not done away with, but transformed, fulfilled, made uh, complete in the meaning of it, fully realized in the resurrection. But, that being said, what of Jesus' defense of the resurrection itself? We haven't quite got to the resurrection proper, we're just dismantling the Sadducees' bad argument about marriage. So what does he say about the resurrection itself? Look at verse 26. Jesus now advances the conversation. He says, and as for the dead being raised, and he begins to set up his positive argument for the positive teaching on the resurrection. And he does so by asking them if they've read, and that is read, i.e. truly understood what they've read, a very famous passage from the book of Exodus. And because they privilege and prioritize the, the books of Moses, Jesus goes to the Torah. He goes to the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, um, to prove his point that the Old Testament, even the Sadducees' own authoritative books, right, proves and teaches the resurrection of the dead. He takes his challengers to the story of the burning bush. You guys remember that story? A very famous story in the Old Testament in which the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the fire that burned but did not consume the bush. And Jesus, he argues from this text in a way that we might not expect, but he makes an argument from this scene. And look at the text with me in verse 26. Jesus says this. He says, Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, listen to this, I am the God of Abraham, 
and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. From this verse, Jesus proves the dead will be raised. From that verse. Did you notice how he did it? Anybody pick up on what he's doing here? Look carefully at the text, okay? So remember, as this is coming to Moses, back in that time, when God appears to Moses and he speaks these words, it was hundreds of years after the lifetimes of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But look, how does God refer to himself in relation to these patriarchs, to these fathers of Israel? He says this. He says, I am their God. You notice that? I am their God. Not, I was their God, but I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Do you see what he's doing here? (laughs) Jesus is arguing, listen, on the basis of the verb tense, of the to be verb in the Hebrew of Exodus 3, verse 6. So inspired (laughs) is each word of the scripture that Jesus can make an argument like this on the basis of a verb tense, (laughs) that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He wasn't, you know, the God then, but he is now their God. He argues this from just the verb tense of the scripture. (laughs) And oh, would we like him, church? Would we so prize and so receive um, holy, right? Every word that comes from the mouth of God to us in this book, like Jesus said. Would we read our Bibles that way, where we take into account each word in the way he has done so here? And so his point here with this argument, I am their God, his point as it regards the resurrection is this. It's that it's not that God used to be their God, but that he's no longer their God anymore, right? Having been prevented by their deaths. No, it's that he remains their God now, just as much as he was then. This is the argument he's beginning to make here. His promise, in other words, to be their God, which he gave to them as he called them, his promise to be their God is still in effect and hasn't been broken or abrogated, hasn't been set aside by their deaths. And if this is the case and this is true, it means that their existence has not come to an end. Do we see that? If God is still their God, they must still be somewhere. (laughs) They can't have just perished. They still maintain an existence of some kind because God is still their God presently then. And so as such, in verse 27, Jesus, he offers his interpretation of this verse by saying this in response to what he's quoted here. He says, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong, Sadducees. God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. He is not the God of dead men without existence, but he is the God of those who are still existing beyond the point of physical death. There's something more than this life. Jesus is arguing here from Exodus 3. The fact that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have continued to exist beyond death in the afterlife and that God has remained their God, it has implications. For Jesus, he isn't just arguing here, remember, about a disembodied, ethereal, spirity kind of existence. That's true, right? They are in a spiritual state now, existing with God in in, in some way. But he's not just arguing spiritual, you know, out there. He's arguing for what? the resurrection. He's arguing for the physical resurrection of the dead to a new kind of embodied life in a new kind of created order. So what pushes his argument over the edge here to that end? 
Well, it's this. We're going to dive in here for a little bit. But it's the very nature of the God who is the God of the fathers. Listen to this. He himself is the living God. The God who has life in and of himself, and he receives it from no other. He just has it. He just is life himself. The God who was so brimming and teeming with goodness and life that he overflowed as a fountain, right, spilling over and created all things that we know and see, right? All things to be a theater for the expression and enjoying of his lively glory. The God who is the God of the fathers is, as Exodus 3 would come to say in a matter of verses, if you keep reading on in that chapter, he is this God, the I am who I am. That is who he is. The God who simply is. Who is and who has always been and will always be just who he is. Perfect. Complete. Lacking nothing but just pure life himself. This is the God, church, who called Moses at the burning bush, and this is the God who is the God of the fathers, of the patriarchs. This is the God, the one who promised to be their God and who pledged that they shall forever be his people. This is the nature of, of this God. So the living God, as he is described in Revela- or excuse me, Exodus 3, the living God, listen to this, is therefore, on that basis, the God of the living. The living God is the God of the living because, hear this, it would be downright inconsistent and contrary to his own nature for those who place their hope in him to be abandoned to death. If he is this kind of God, how could his own people who have placed their hope and their trust and given him their worship, if he is this kind of God, how could he abandon them to death? How could they, how could we cease to be? This is the argument Jesus is making here. How could the living God be a God of dead people? (laughs) Would not his own life flow out to them? Would not his chosen people, those who are in covenant with him, having received his promises by faith, would not his chosen people be caught up in his own endless life? As we sung earlier, (laughs) called the feast forever on a love beyond all time, now with glorious Father, Son, and Spirit is man intertwined. Will we not be caught up into this kind of fellowship and life with our God? This is what Jesus is advancing here. Will we take it a step further with this principle laid down? Right? If this God was still the God of the patriarchs when he spoke to Moses, it would communicate his own ongoing commitment toward them. He's still their God. He still has something, in other words, planned for them. Somewhere he's taking them. And following from that, seeing as he created them, and by extension, everyone, by extension, us, he created them to do what? To cultivate and subdue the earth, right? The created order that he made to spread his glory to the ends of the earth. He created them um, that their continued existence with him at that point then, after their death, would indicate his intention to raise them up from the dead, reunite them with their bodies, now perfected to serve him as they were called to serve him in the beginning in glory forevermore. If God created all things as he did in the beginning 
and his people have gone to be with him, would not his tension be that he would fulfill what he, he started, what he, what he finished, what he would start in the beginning, that we would not in a spiritual <laughs> ether, but in a real embodied existence, do what God intended mankind to do, do what he intended his people to do, to spread his glory to the ends of this earth, to enjoy him through the things he's made and to worship him forevermore as the creator and redeemer of our souls. God's own nature, we see here, and his word of promise to the fathers. These things ensure their existence has not come to nothing and that they have not ceased to be. That's the point Jesus is making here. But rather, that their spirits remain and one day will be united with new and imperishable bodies. That's what he's arguing here. That even death, even death, will not limit God's promise to be their God because they've entered into a relationship with the God who is the eternal God, who is life himself. And it's on this basis then that Jesus says to them, you clearly do not know the scriptures or the power of this God. It's on this basis that he concludes his argument that contrary to the heir of the Sadducees, those who trust in the living God will not be abandoned to death but will be raised up to life as he always intended it. Let me say that again. Those who trust in the living God will not be abandoned to death, but will be raised to life as he always intended it. All those who have worshipped, now worship, and will continue to worship this God, do not do so in vain. Their hope in life after death is not based on wishful thinking, it's not any sort of opiate for the masses, but it's based on the concrete reality of who God himself is. In short, Jesus' argument is this. If God is God, we will be raised. If God is this God, we will certainly be raised. It would be impossible for anything else to happen if we're in relationship to this kind of God. Because of this, because of who God is, he has the power to raise the dead. And because of who God is, he has a plan in pledging himself to a people to raise the dead. This is the force of Jesus' argument. He's saying this is the plain teaching of Exodus 3. And more than that, though the Sadducees wouldn't necessarily pay this much mind, this is also the plain teaching of the rest of the Old Testament. Though it becomes clearer and more progressively revealed, we see in Job 19 that Job, one of the oldest books in the entire Old Testament, he says this, For I know... My Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, in my flesh, I shall see God. Or, as Isaiah prophesied a hundred years, hundreds of years, rather, before the coming of Christ, he said this, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in dust, awake and sing for joy. There's life to be had after this one. And it's like the life we have now, but transcended and perfected, and made the way it ought to have been from the beginning prior to sin. And moreover, as Revelation progresses in the scriptures, the ultimate proof of our own resurrection is the resurrection of Christ. His resurrection is what will happen to us at the end of time, which has broken smack dab into the middle of time such that we will be assured of what will happen to us. If God can raise him, and he has raised him, we celebrate this on Easter Sunday, if God can raise him, he can raise us. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 
And God's, God raised up the Lord, who will also raise us up by his power. Or as he writes later in the same letter, but in fact, he says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits, the first fruits of those who have fallen to sleep, indicating that he is the first of many to come. His resurrection, church, on that first Easter Sunday ensures that God has the power and has the plan to raise all the dead on the last day. But at this point, it's helpful and necessary to clarify a few things. God has the plan. He has the power. He will raise up everyone on the last day. But we need to clarify something here. Though God can and will raise everyone, not everyone will enter into the same kind of resurrection life. In this passage, Jesus is arguing primarily, uh, yes, for the general resurrection of the dead. This is coming for all, he says, in contrast to the Sadducees. But he's specifically focused upon the resurrection of God's people, of those who are like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who have believed God's promise and entered into his covenant people. All those who have been saved by God's grace, received through faith, from those before the time of Christ who placed their faith in the promised one to come, and those after that time who have placed their faith in the crucified and risen Christ. All those will be raised up to eternal, embodied, and indestructible life. Being united to the risen Christ by faith, we will also be united with him in a resurrection like his. But for those who are not united to Christ, they will be raised up to be eternally separated. Not united, but separated from God. Being raised along with us on that last day, but entering into a very different resurrected state than us. As Jesus himself says in John chapter 5, verses 28 through 29, he says this, An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear my voice and come out. Those who have done good, that is, in context of John, who have received him to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil, that is, rejected him to the resurrection of judgment. Instead of entering into a renewed creation, those who reject him will be cast out into, as the Bible says in other places, utter darkness, thrown into a lake of fire and exposed to the full judgment of their sin against God and what is referred to as hell. Hell, that place that Jesus spoke about earlier in Mark's gospel in which he said, there, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched in Mark chapter 9 where the suffering under the experience of God's wrath does not come to an end, but is continued on and on in an embodied and a resurrected, eternal sort of state. We will all be raised, but what kind of resurrection will you experience? That's the question for us today. It's not what will be raised, but what kind of resurrection will be for you? For every one of us, this life is not all there is. There will be something after this, after death, and even after a temporary spiritual existence prior to that final day, we will all be reunited with our bodies and enter into some kind of life that will last forever. And if you never have before, this morning, you have the opportunity to believe in Jesus today and change your forever. To leave this place knowing that 
not only is there life after death, but that the life you'll enter into is one filled with love and joy and peace and satisfaction forevermore. The life that you were always intended to live apart from sin that separates you from God, that could be yours apart from the suffering and the sickness and the striving of the world, apart from Satan's, his lies and his attacks and his accusations. The life that you've, and each of us all, right? The life that you've truly longed for most deeply in your heart where everything, think about this, would be just the way it's supposed to be. That up till now you've sought out by looking in all the wrong places. That kind of life is promised to you today. Today, Jesus, he offers himself to you. He says to turn from the sin of looking for life apart from God and to believe in him instead. To believe that he died on the cross to pay the price for your sins against God and was raised from the dead, listen, to guarantee that that price had been paid in full and assure you that all who trust in him will not be abandoned to death but will live forevermore. Listen, don't live, don't live like this life is all there is. If you're hearing this this morning, don't live like this life is all there is. Don't worship, for that matter, anyone or anything that can't give you eternal life. (laughs) Worship the living God who can grant you resurrection life through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Believe in Jesus today. Become one of those who say, there is a resurrection. And that resurrection is my entrance into eternal joy. Become one of those who say there is a resurrection. And for those of us, as we prepare to close, who have trusted in Christ and who say, yes, there is a resurrection, (laughs) and it's for me, here are four quick things this means for our lives here and now. Since the resurrection is true, that means, number one, that this life isn't all there is. This life is not all there is. So, we don't have to lose heart when certain desires of our hearts go unmet. Maybe for a season or maybe until the end of this life here and now. We don't have to lose heart or be discouraged because God has promised and will surely bring us to a place in which no good and right and deep desire of our hearts will go unfulfilled. This life isn't all there is, but there's a life to come in which God will keep every promise, fulfill every desire, and usher us into eternal joy. Second, because this is true, church, we have real hope to share with our neighbors, don't we? We have real hope to share with our neighbors that there is a certain future for them to which we can point and say, hey, God has taken us somewhere. He's bringing us into that new creation in which we'll live together with him forever in bodies like we have now perfected and without end. There is something to which God is bringing his people toward. This is the teaching of the Bible. This is the promise of the gospel. Christ's own resurrection guarantees it. We can tell our neighbors of a concrete promise of everlasting life with a God who will not abandon any who trust in him. We have this to offer to others. Third, resurrection life to come, it spurs on, if we understand it rightly, a new kind of living now. Because there's new life to come, we should live new lives now, in other words. The resurrection, among many things that it means, it means an end of and a breaking from sin, right? And its power and its dominion in our lives. 
Romans 6 says Christ died, right, to put away our sin forevermore, and he was raised up uh, to live to God, right? And just so for us, spiritually now, we've already come into a new kind of life with him in which we've broken away from sin, and we're headed toward a place where there's no trace or stain of sin forever. So the question for us is, how can we be striving to live a life now that looks like the, like the life we'll live in the new creation? Uh, abandoning your marriages aside. Keep those. Keep those until the end. But with everything else, how can we strive to live a life now that looks like the life we'll live in the resurrection, where we enjoy things the way God has intended them, where we worship God fully and completely and with all our focus, where we fellowship with God's people in utter love and humility? How can we live now like we will live then? Strive to a new kind of life because the resurrection is true. And lastly here, Resurrection life, it secures the meaning of this life now. Something that we all long for, that many of our neighbors wish they, they had that experience of going, this matters. But resurrection life secures the meaning of this life now. The Apostle Paul, after he finishes his defense of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says this. He says, therefore, because all that is true, because the resurrection will be so, because we're all headed toward this final destination, he says, therefore, be steadfast, Immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. What we do now will matter forever as we serve Christ, as we sacrifice for the glory of his name, as we live lives of good works here on, on the earth in response toward his grace. What we do now will matter forever because death, even death, won't render our work to have been for nothing. So press on, sacrifice, serve, live for the glory of Christ because it's all mattering and it's all going to amount toward <laughs> a better experience, a preparatory uh, movement toward that great day. Church, as we conclude on this Palm Sunday, we return to our original question. Do you say there is a resurrection? Jesus does. Jesus does. He says that all those who trust the living God will not be abandoned to death, but will be raised to life as he always intended it. Raised in a resurrection like his own, never to die again, free from every trace or stain of sin, to live with him forevermore. Singing and feasting and laughing and walking through the new creation beside its very king. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that we do have a sure anchor for our hope. That we can look to who you are as you revealed yourself to us in the scripture and say, the God of life will not abandon his people to death. If you are who you are, then we will certainly be raised. And raised to enjoy a kind of life that is echoed now, but a kind of life, Lord, that is transcendent and wonderful and full of glory and joy forevermore. Lord, would you take this hope, would you embed it more firmly in our hearts, and would you help us to live lives now, full of anticipation, full of certainty, full of uh, a kind of life that reflects the life to which we're headed. And would you do so for the glory of your name, for the good of our souls, and for the sake of our neighbors, that they would see the reality of new life to be found in Christ. Would you do all this? Uh, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.